Chapter Thirteen of Sentimental Education, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. Rosinette as a Lovely Turk. Really? Why, yes, assuredly. Oh, how good you are! And she caught his hand. He clasped hers tightly in his. Oh, let it go! What does it signify when it is to one who sympathizes with you that you offer it? You place every confidence in me when I speak of these things, but you distrust me when I talk to you about my love. I don't doubt you on that point, my poor friend. Why, this distrust, as if I were a wretch capable of abusing. Oh, no, if I had only a proof. What proof? The proof that a person might give to the first comer, what you have granted to myself. And he recalled to her recollection how, on one occasion, they had gone out together on a winter's twilight, when there was a fog. This seemed now a long time ago. What, then, was to prevent her from showing herself on his arm before the whole world without any fear on her part, and without any mental reservation on his, not having anyone around them who could importune them? Be it so, she said, with a promptness of decision that at first astonished Frederick. But he replied in a lively fashion, Would you like me to wait at the corner of the Rue Tranchée and the Rue de la Ferme? "'Good heavens, my friend!' faltered Madame Arnault. Without giving her time to reflect, he added, "'Next Tuesday, I suppose?' "'Tuesday?' "'Yes, between two and three o'clock.' "'I will be there.' And she turned aside her face with a movement of shame. Frederick placed his lips on the nape of her neck. "'Oh, this is not right,' she said. "'You will make me repent.' He turned away, dreading the fickleness which is customary with women. Then, on the threshold, he murmured softly, as if it were a thing that was thoroughly understood. On Tuesday, she lowered her beautiful eyes in a cautious and resigned fashion. Frederick had a plan arranged in his mind. He hoped that, owing to the rain or the sun, he might get her to stop under some doorway, and that once there she would go into some house. The difficulty was to find one that would suit. He made a search, and about the middle of the Rue Tranchée, he read at a distance on a signboard, Furnished Apartments. The waiter, divining his object, showed him immediately above the ground floor a room and a closet with two exits. Frederick took it for a month and paid in advance. Then he went into three shops to buy the rarest perfumery. He got a piece of imitation guipure, which was to replace the horrible red cotton foot coverlids. He selected a pair of blue satin slippers. Only the fear of appearing coarse checked the amount of his purchases. He came back with them, and with more devotion than those who are erecting processional altars, he altered the position of the furniture, arranged the curtains himself, put heather in the fireplace, and covered the chest of drawers with violets. He would have liked to pave the entire apartment with gold. "'Tomorrow is the time,' said he to himself. "'Yes, tomorrow I am not dreaming.' 
and he felt his heart throbbing violently under the delirious excitement begotten by his anticipations then when everything was ready he carried off the key in his pocket as if the happiness which slept there might have flown away along with it a letter from his mother was awaiting him when he reached his abode why such a long absence your conduct is beginning to look ridiculous i understand your hesitating more or less at first with regard to this union however think well upon it and she put the matter before him with the utmost clearness an income of forty-five thousand francs however people were talking about it and monsieur rourke was waiting for a definite answer as for the young girl her position was truly most embarrassing she is deeply attached to you frederick threw aside the letter even before he had finished reading it and opened another epistle which came from delaurier dear old boy the pear is ripe in accordance with your promise we may count on you we meet to-morrow at daybreak in the place de pantheon drop into the cafe soufflant it is necessary for me to have a chat with you before the manifestation takes place oh i know them with their manifestations a thousand thanks i have a more agreeable appointment and on the following morning at eleven o'clock frederick had left the house he wanted to give one last glance at the preparations then who could tell but that by some chance or other she might be at the place of meeting before him as he emerged from the rue tranchee he heard a great clamour behind the madeleine he pressed forward and saw at the far end of the square to the left a number of men in blouses and well-dressed people in fact a manifesto published in the newspapers had summoned to the spot all who had subscribed to the banquet of the reform party the ministry had almost without a moment's delay posted up a proclamation prohibiting the meeting the parliamentary opposition had on the previous evening disclaimed any connection with it but the patriots who were unaware of this resolution on the part of their leaders had come to the meeting-place followed by a great crowd of spectators a deputation from the schools had made its way a short time before to the house of odillon barreau it was now at the residence of the minister for foreign affairs and nobody could tell whether the banquet would take place whether the government would carry out its threat and whether the national guards would make their appearance people were as much enraged against the deputies as against power the crowd was growing bigger and bigger when suddenly the strains of the marseillaise rang through the air it was the students column which had just arrived on the scene they marched along at an ordinary walking pace in double file and in good order with angry faces bare hands and all exclaiming at intervals long live reform down with guizot frederick's friends were there sure enough they would have noticed him and dragged him along with them he quickly sought refuge in the rue de l'arcade when the students had taken two turns round the madeleine they went down in the direction of the place de la concorde it was full of people and at a distance the crowd pressed close together had the appearance of a field of dark ears of corn swaying to and fro at the same moment some soldiers of the line ranged themselves in battle array at the left-hand side of the church 
The groups remained standing there, however. In order to put an end to this, some police officers in civilian dress seized the most riotous of them in a brutal fashion and carried them off to the guardhouse. Frederick, in spite of his indignation, remained silent. He might have been arrested, along with the others, and he would have missed Madame Arnault. A little while afterwards the helmets of the municipal guards appeared. They kept striking about them with the flat side of their sabres. A horse fell down. The people made a rush forward to save him, and as soon as the rider was in the saddle they all ran away. Then there was a great silence. The thin rain, which had moistened the asphalt, was no longer falling. Clouds floated past, gently swept on by the west wind. Frederick began running through the Rue Tranchée, looking before him and behind him. At length it struck two o'clock. "'Ah, now is the time,' said he to himself. "'She is leaving her house, she is approaching. And a minute after, she would have had time to be here.' Up to three he tried to keep quiet. "'No, she is not going to be late. A little patience.' and for want of something to do he examined the most interesting shops that he passed a bookseller's a saddler's and a mourning warehouse soon he knew the names of the different books the various kinds of harness and every sort of material the persons who looked after these establishments from seeing him continually going backwards and forwards were at first surprised and then alarmed and they closed up their shop fronts no doubt she had met with some impediment and for that reason she must be enduring pain on account of it but what delight would be afforded in a very short time for she would come that was certain she has given me her promise in the meantime an intolerable feeling of anxiety was gradually seizing hold of him impelled by an absurd idea he returned to his hotel as if he expected to find her there at the same moment she might have reached the street in which their meeting was to take place. He rushed out. Was there no one? And he resumed his tramp up and down the footpath. He stared at the gaps in the pavement, the mouths of the gutters, the candelabra, and the numbers above the doors. The most trifling objects became for him companions, or rather ironical spectators, and the regular fronts of the houses seemed to him to have a pitiless aspect. He was suffering from cold feet. He felt as if he were about to succumb to the dejection which was crushing him. The reverberation of his footsteps vibrated through his brain. When he saw by his watch that it was four o'clock, he experienced, as it were, a sense of vertigo, a feeling of dismay. He tried to repeat some verses to himself, to enter on a calculation, no matter of what sort, to invent some kind of story. Impossible! He was beset by the image of Madame Arnault, he felt a longing to run in order to meet her, but what road ought he to take so that they might not pass each other? He went up to a messenger, put five francs into his hand, and ordered him to go to the Rue du Paradis, to Jacques Arnaud's residence, to inquire if Madame were at home. Then he took up his post at the corner of the Rue de la Ferme and of the Rue Tranchée, so as to be able to look down both of them at the same time. On the boulevard, in the background of the scene in front of him, confused masses of people were gliding past. He could distinguish every now and then the agrette of a dragoon or a woman's hat, and he strained his eyes in the effort to recognize the wearer. A child in rags, exhibiting a jack-in-the-box, asked him with a smile for alms. The man with the velvet vest reappeared. 
The porter had not seen her going out. What had kept her in? If she were ill, he would have been told about it. Was it a visitor? Nothing was easier than to say that she was not at home. He struck his forehead. Ah, I am stupid. Of course, it is this political outbreak that prevented her from coming. He was relieved by this apparently natural explanation. Then suddenly, but her quarter of the city is quiet. And a horrible doubt seized hold of his mind. Suppose she is not coming at all and merely gave me a promise in order to get rid of me. No, no, what had prevented her from coming was, no doubt, some extraordinary mischance, one of those occurrences that baffled all one's anticipations. In that case, she would have written to him. And he sent the hotel errand boy to his residence in the Rue Romfort to find out whether there happened to be a letter waiting for him there. No letter had been brought. This absence of news reassured him. He drew omens from the number of coins which he took up in his hand out of his pocket by chance, from the physiognomies of the passers-by, and from the color of different horses, and when the augury was unfavorable he forced himself to disbelieve in it. In his sudden outbursts of rage against Madame Arnaud he abused her in muttering tones. Then came fits of weakness that nearly made him swoon, followed all of a sudden by fresh rebounds of hopefulness. She would make her appearance presently. She was there, behind his back. He turned round. There was nobody there. Once he perceived about thirty paces away a woman of the same height with a dress of the same kind. He came up to her. It was not she. It struck five, half-past five, six. The gas-lamps were lighted. Madame Arnaud had not come. The night before she had dreamed that she had been for some time on the footpath in the Rue Tranchée. She was waiting there for something the nature of which she was not quite clear about, but which nevertheless was of great importance, and without knowing why she was afraid of being seen but a pestiferous little dog kept barking at her furiously and biting at the hem of her dress every time she shook him off he returned stubbornly to the attack always barking more violently than before madame arnaud woke up the dog's barking continued she strained her ears to listen it came from her son's room she rushed to the spot in her bare feet it was the child himself who was coughing his hands were burning, his face flushed, and his voice singularly hoarse. Every minute he found it more difficult to breathe freely. She waited there till daybreak, bent over the coverlet watching him. At eight o'clock the drum of the National Guard gave warning to Monsieur Arnaud that his comrades were expecting his arrival. He dressed himself quickly and went away, promising that he would immediately be passing the house of their doctor, Monsieur Collot. At ten o'clock, when M. Collot did not make his appearance, Madame Arnaud dispatched her chambermaid for him. The doctor was away in the country, and the young man who was taking his place had gone out on some business. Eugène kept his head on one side of the bolster with contracted eyebrows and dilated nostrils. His pale little face had become whiter than the sheets, and there escaped from his larynx a wheezing caused by his oppressed breathing, which became gradually shorter, drier, and more metallic. His cough resembled the noise made by those barbarous mechanical inventions by which toy dogs are enabled to bark. Madame Arnaud was seized with terror. She rang the bell violently, calling out for help, and exclaiming, A doctor! A doctor! 
Ten minutes later came an elderly gentleman in a white tie, and with grey whiskers well trimmed. He put several questions as to the habits, the age, and the constitution of the young patient, and studied the case with his head thrown back. He next wrote out a prescription. The calm manner of this old man was intolerable. He smelt of aromatics. She would have liked to beat him. He said he would come back in the evening. The horrible coughing soon began again. Sometimes the child arose suddenly. Convulsive movements shook the muscles of his breast, and in his efforts to breathe his stomach shrank in as if he were suffocating after running too hard. Then he sank down, with his head thrown back and his mouth wide open. With infinite pains Madame Arnault tried to make him swallow the contents of the phials, hippo-wine, and a potion containing trisulfate of antimony but he pushed away the spoon, groaning in a feeble voice. He seemed to be blowing out his words. From time to time she re-read the prescription. The observations of the formulary frightened her. Perhaps the apothecary had made some mistake. Her powerlessness filled her with despair. Monsieur Collot's pupil arrived. He was a young man of modest demeanor, new to medical work, and he made no attempt to disguise his opinion about the case. He was at first undecided as to what he should do, for fear of compromising himself, and finally he ordered pieces of ice to be applied to the sick child. It took a long time to get ice. The bladder containing the ice burst. It was necessary to change the little boy's shirt. This disturbance brought on an attack of even a more dreadful character than any of the previous ones. The child began tearing off the linen round his neck, as if he wanted to remove the obstacle that was choking him, and he scratched the walls and seized the curtains of his bedstead, trying to get a point of support to assist him in breathing. His face was now of a bluish hue, and his entire body, steeped in a cold perspiration, appeared to be growing lean. His haggard eyes were fixed with terror on his mother. He threw his arms round her neck and hung there in a desperate fashion, and, repressing her rising sobs, she gave utterance in a broken voice to loving words, "'Yes, my pet, my angel, my treasure!' Then came intervals of calm. She went to look for playthings, a punchinello, a collection of images, and spread them out on the bed in order to amuse him. She even made an attempt to sing." She began to sing a little ballad which she used to sing years before, when she was nursing him wrapped up in swaddling clothes in this same little upholstered chair. But a shiver ran all over his frame, just as when a wave is agitated by the wind. The balls of his eyes protruded. She thought he was going to die, and turned away her eyes to avoid seeing him. The next moment she felt strength enough in her to look at him. He was still living. The hours succeeded each other, dull, mournful, interminable, hopeless, and she no longer counted the minutes, save by the progress of this mental anguish. The shakings of his chest threw him forward as if to shatter his body. Finally he vomited something strange, which was like a parchment tube. What was this? She fancied that he had evacuated one end of his entrails. But he now began to breathe freely and regularly. This appearance of well-being frightened her more than anything else that had happened. She was sitting like one petrified, her arms hanging by her sides, her eyes fixed, when M. Collot suddenly made his appearance. The child, in his opinion, was saved. She did not realize what he meant at first, and made him repeat the words. 
was not this one of those consoling phrases which were customary with medical men the doctor went away with an air of tranquillity then it seemed as if the cords that pressed round her heart were loosened saved is this possible suddenly the thought of frederick presented itself to her mind in a clear and inexorable fashion it was a warning sent to her by providence but the lord in his mercy had not wished to complete her chastisement what expiation could she offer hereafter if she were to persevere in this love affair no doubt insults would be flung at her son's head on her account and madame arnaud saw him as a young man wounded in a combat carried off on a litter dying at one spring she threw herself on the little chair and letting her soul escape towards the heights of heaven she vowed to god that she would sacrifice as a holocaust her first real passion her only weakness as a woman frederick had returned home he remained in his armchair without even possessing enough of energy to curse her a sort of slumber fell upon him and in the midst of his nightmare he could hear the rain falling still under the impression that he was there outside on the footpath next morning yielding to an incapacity to resist the temptation which clung to him he again sent a messenger to madame arnaud's house whether the true explanation happened to be that the fellow did not deliver his message or that she had too many things to say to explain herself in a word or two the same answer was brought back this insolence was too great a feeling of angry pride took possession of him he swore in his own mind that he would never again cherish even a desire and like a group of leaves carried away by a hurricane his love disappeared he experienced a sense of relief, a feeling of stoical joy, then a need of violent action, and he walked on at random through the streets. Men from the faubourgs were marching past armed with guns and old swords, some of them wearing red caps and all singing the Marseillaise or the Girondins. Here and there a national guard was hurrying to join his mayoral department drums could be heard rolling in the distance a conflict was going on at port st martin there was something lively and warlike in the air frederick kept walking on without stopping the excitement of the great city made him gay on the frascati hill he got a glimpse of the marechal's windows a wild idea occurred to him a reaction of youthfulness he crossed the boulevard the yard-gate was just being closed, and Delphine, who was in the act of writing on it with a piece of charcoal, arms given, said to him in an eager tone, "'Ah, madame is in a nice state. She had dismissed a groom who insulted her this morning. She thinks there's going to be pillage everywhere. She is frightened to death, and the more so as monsieur has gone.' "'What, monsieur?' "'The prince.' Frederick entered the boudoir. The marechal appeared in her petticoat and her hair hanging down her back in disorder. "'Ah, thanks, you are going to save me. Tis the second time. You are one of those who never count the cost.' "'A thousand pardons,' said Frederick, catching her round the waist with both hands. "'How now, what are you doing?' stammered the marechal at the same time, surprised and cheered up by his manner. He replied, "'I am the fashion. I am reformed.' She let herself fall back on the divan and continued laughing under his kisses. They spent the afternoon looking out through the window at the people in the street. Then he brought her to dine at the Trois Frères Provençaux. 
the meal was a long and dainty one they came back on foot for want of a vehicle at the announcement of a change of ministry paris had changed every one was in a state of delight people kept promenading about the streets and every floor was illuminated with lamps so that it seemed as if it were broad daylight the soldiers made their way back to their barracks worn out and looking quite depressed the people saluted them with exclamations of long live the line they went on without making any response among the national guard on the contrary the officers flushed with enthusiasm brandished their sabres vociferating long live reform and every time the two lovers heard this word they laughed frederick told droll stories and was quite gay making their way through the rue de faux they reached the boulevards venetian lanterns hanging from the houses formed wreaths of flame underneath a confused swarm of people kept in constant motion in the midst of those moving shadows could be seen here and there the steely glitter of bayonets there was a great uproar the crowd was too compact and it was impossible to make one's way back in a straight line they were entering the rue comartin when suddenly there burst forth behind them a noise like the crackling made by an immense piece of silk in the act of being torn across it was the discharge of musketry on the boulevard des capuchines ha ah, a few of the citizens are getting a crack said frederick calmly for there are situations in which a man of the least cruel disposition is so much detached from his fellow-men that he would see the entire human race perishing without a single throb of the heart the marechal was clinging to his arm with her teeth chattering she declared that she would not be able to walk twenty steps further then by a refinement of hatred in order the better to offer an outrage in his own soul to madame arnault he led rosinette to the hotel in the rue tranchet and brought her up to the room which he had got ready for the other the flowers were not withered the guipure was spread out on the bed he drew forth from the cupboard the little slippers rosinette considered this forethought on his part a great proof of his delicacy of sentiment about one o'clock she was awakened by distant rolling sounds and she saw that he was sobbing with his head buried in the pillow what's the matter with you now my own darling tis the excess of happiness said frederick i have been too long yearning after you End of chapter 13, part 2